Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number Six, Mark Spotswood, Unraveling the Conjunction Paradox. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Mark Spotswood. Mark is a professor at Florida State, where he teaches evidence, civil procedure, and scientific evidence. Mark's scholarship focuses on improving fact-finding in the legal system, and his work often features a rich interdisciplinary blend of psychology, mathematics, and philosophy. Mark's research intersects closely with my own, and so I've followed his writing for quite some time. We recently invited Mark to Vanderbilt to participate in our annual New Voices workshop, which features junior scholars in litigation and dispute resolution. There, he presented his most recent paper, Unraveling the Conjunction Paradox, which is the subject of today's episode. The conjunction paradox is a problem that has long bedeviled scholars working on the nature of legal proof. Over the years, several theories have tried to explain the paradox away or otherwise avoid it. Mark gives the paradox a different spin. He suggests that maybe the paradox isn't a paradox at all. Maybe it's right. All right, well, Mark, thanks a lot for joining us on the show. Maybe you can start us off a little bit by telling the audience about the conjunction paradox, what it is, and how it works. Okay, so to some extent, even like the description some people might disagree with, but this is the one I go with in the paper, is you have from probability theory, right, a sort of very basic paradigm you're supposed to follow in deciding if you have two separate events and you have uncertainty about both, right? So you'd say it's 60% likely that the first thing happened and it's 60% likely that the second thing happened. How likely is it that they both happened? The sort of, if you have truly independent events, you're supposed to just multiply the probabilities and get a 36% joint probability. It can be more complicated than that. You can have dependence, you can have anti-dependence, it can range around. But the conjunction paradox is usually used to say the law is ignoring all of these difficulties and instead saying that whenever you have multiple elements of a claim, what the fact finder is entitled to do is either they're directly told to do it or they're just not told not to do it, depending on the court and the jury instructions, is go through all the elements so long as each one is more than 50% likely in a civil case, you can find liability. Well, if you have even two elements that are 60% likely and you have a lot of independence, that means you're probably finding some defendants who actually didn't do the thing that they're being found liable for. You're going to take their money because the jury is going to be ignoring this issue of conjunctive likelihood. Just to make clear, so what you have here is two elements, both of which are proven to, say, 0.6, which are both satisfying the preponderance standard. Say they are independent. Mm-hmm. 0.6 times 0.6 is 0.36, which is less than 0.5. That's right. And so you're, so the paradox is, well, then it is not more likely than not that both of these things happen or both elements are satisfied. But yet the legal system suggests oh, we should either convict or find liability or anything like that. Yeah, that's right. And so calling it a paradox is, is already sort of loading the argument to some extent. So this was first introduced to the discussion by L. Jonathan Cohen back in his book, and His notion of a paradox was even multiplying the likelihoods together is so obviously wrong that the the, the paradox is that probability tells us to do something that's just stupid, 
right? I mean, I'm, I'm oversimplifying a bit, but I mean, that's kind of the, the gap, what the paradox was probability says to do X, but intuition says that can't be right. I'm sort of pushing the view in this paper that to the degree there's a paradox, it's that probability is based on lots of smart people sitting around and trying to say, how do co-occurrences work? Right? It's just the math of things, more than one thing happening that are similar enough that we can compare them. And so paradox is probability has this very useful set of guidelines that the law turns its back on. And maybe a lot of people try to justify the rejection. I take the view that we should really just try our best to give jurors something they can use that gets them pretty close to probability theory's answer. So let me back up just one second yeah. before we dive into this. What got you interested in this problem? So uh, a couple of things. You know, I had been writing a series of papers that tried to interject more psychological realism into the long-standing debates between like the Bayesian camp and the explanationist camp and evidence theory. And there was a really common thing that I saw happening in these papers, which was to do a little drive-by about the conjunction paradox while you're mostly focused on other things. And so you would kind of assume all of your theoretic priors. You wouldn't do almost any inquiry into the psychological literature on how individuals normally handle conjunctive probabilistic estimation. And you would just sort of take your own intuitions to be obviously true. And then you, if your theory gave you the answer you thought was intuitively correct about the conjunction paradox, you would just move on. And instead of saying, well, first of all, the way we've been talking about it is drastically oversimplified because independence is a very special case in litigation. So even starting from, well, that's how it would work to follow probability theory is wrong. And then there's questions about the risk of error and how we should divide it and, and what gives us the fairest balance in those senses. I saw a lot of just suggestions made and in papers I like, right? These are often thoughtful papers. Yours is one of them where, you know, you say a lot of sensible things along the way, but there's just kind of this, this pass through. And it's an interesting question because ultimately if the, the statisticians are right, if the probability theory tells us to do this and we're ignoring it, then in a large number of close cases, it's a big country and we're telling lots of juries to do something that probability theory suggests is finding defendants liable who actually didn't do the thing they're being sued for. So let me yeah. probe you on this last piece. Yeah. I think this is the part that is important about it. So oftentimes we think about this paradox as just a theoretical, conceptually it's kind of weird and we're not sure why this is so. And I think one of the things that is very easy to do in that kind of context to say, look how weird it is, but let's move on because mm -hmm. it really doesn't matter in real life. Yeah. And what you're saying is that, look, the jury instructions in fact break up the process of proof in this way, mm -hmm. which has actual real world effects. It actually has the possibility of making it making error rates higher i, I guess yeah. let, let me let me let me let you run with that yeah yeah i mean so if there's one kind of overriding theme that ties all of my scholarship together right it's trying to pay attention to adjudicative errors even when we can't easily see that see see them in individual cases so i do a lot of stuff with the psychology of unconscious bias and system one then all of that stuff suggests here are these influences that will shift how people are making decisions not always in a way that connects with what actually happened in the, un the underlying facts of the case. Because it happens unconsciously, the jury isn't aware that they do it, the judge feels the same feelings, and so they, they judge thinks the jury got it right. It's an error, but it's a hidden error, 
right? And so one of the things that appeals to me about the conjunction paradox is seen from my kind of perspective, it's just another thing in the same class of problems. It's an er a common kind of reasoning error. I mean, it was one of the original things in Kahneman and Tversky back in the day was conjunction fallacy in, in reasoning. Uh, and so it's a natural tendency. The judicial system just lets jurors run with it. But something actually happened in these cases. And if we believe classical probability theory, and it's worked very well in a vast number of other domains, what, what we're doing is each time that we take what I, we follow what the law does, which I call the least likely element rule, as long as the least likely element is 51%, you go with it. Well, it's basically whenever you're deciding cases and multiple elements are that close, it's like you're gambling on each one. Let me ask you for a little more detail on this. Sure. So in the paper, you basically detail, I roughly am going to characterize sure. it as two ways in which scholars have responded to the conjunction paradox. And, and you can roughly categorize these responses as being either non-mathematical, which is the kind of explanatory version, mm -hmm. and the mathematical, where you bring up, or you sort of very insightfully suggest that most of these mathematical approaches are basically least likely element rules, which you then term LLER. Mm -hmm. So give us a, a little bit of a, a summary on the responses. So how are these different and how do they tackle the conjunction paradox. Okay, so this first category of response that you talked about, right, is to say, well, math just seems to be causing us trouble. And the, a lot of the people who take this tack, I think in some ways grapple more forthrightly with what the implications of the paradox are on either side. On one, on one side, if we decide cases in a way that doesn't accord with our intuitions, that, that can have real costs to the legitimacy of the justice system, that can feels like we're doing something wrong and maybe we should heed those feelings. But on the flip side, there really is this risk of finding the wrong people liable. So they say, well, what if we just talked about it in a non-mathematical way? We use tools from the philosophy of science or, you know, there's different sort of theories along these lines, but let's just take the numbers out of it. And then the conjunction paradox goes away. And so in these explanatory cases, does the conjunction paradox really go away? So it's, this is one of the, the key moves I make in the paper, right, is to suggest that it doesn't. That what you have is even if you remove the numbers, you're not attaching a probability to anything. What you're being asked to do is sort of holistically weigh the plaintiff has offered you this explanation, the defendant has offered you this, this other explanation, which one is more, I don't want to use the word likely because that suggests probability, but which one is a more persuasive explanation of the evidence, let's say. Well, the problem is among the features that these competing explanations will have will be an explanatory structure. Some explanations will be conjunctive in form. In order for the plaintiff to win, he has to prove not just the defendant hit him with his car, but also that the defendant was driving negligently in some way. There will be story features that correspond to both of those things. If you aren't persuaded on either one, the story no longer has the power to help him win, so the plaintiff needs to buy all of the pieces at once. Defendants can offer disjunctive explanations. They can say, well, look, I was driving uh, in a reliable way, but moreover, I crashed in that intersection, but someone else actually hit you, you know, the other driver hit you with a car. Let's imagine it's a, like a bystander pedestrian who gets hit. There can legitimately be questions about both elements. You can disbelieve the defendant on one, or you can disbelieve the defendant on the other, but so long as they're right one of those two times, they should win. And so the philosophical question, these are, you know, these are normally based on sort of philosophy of science sort of underpinnings is, well, what impact does it have to make an explanation conjunctive? 
And when you walk through the sort of different criterion you're supposed to use in scoring the power of explanations, a lot of them converge in sometimes counterintuitive ways on conjunction is generally something that makes an explanation a little bit more precarious. Whereas the simpler an explanation is, the fewer pieces it has, if it's less conjunctive, that can be a strength. We often call that Occam's razor. If you make an explanation disjunctive, well, it's like getting to throw an extra, you know, more darts at the board in order to hit the bullseye. So even if you're saying we're not going to attach any numbers, you still have to say, otherwise, these are equally convincing explanations, but one of them's conjunctive. What do we do with that? So getting rid of the math effectively doesn't, at least to your mind, get rid of the problem. It doesn't get rid of the problem. Now, what about the mathematical avoidance rules? So you have Charlie Nesson, you have Kevin Claremont, and they're basically adopting this LLER rule, the sort of minimum rules. What is important is the minimum probability that attaches to any of the elements. So in the case of the one that you presented at the very beginning of this talk, you, you were saying 0.6 and 0.6. Well, the minimum is 0.6. You don't multiply them together. We're going to change the operator here. We're not going to multiply. We're going to just take the minimum, and the minimum is 0.6. So what's wrong with that? So I think there's a number of things wrong with that. So the thing that most motivates me in not liking that solution is there is some real distribution of which cases have merit. Separate from how it feels to the fact finder, separate from sort of philosophical ideas about how we ought to combine beliefs, you know, in a certain number of these cases, all of the elements are satisfied and in a certain number they're not. Now, if you're being careful about doing the math, what they're doing in all of these different mathematical justifications, as you say, but it tends to get you to the same place, this least likely element rule, what that is from the standpoint of classical probability is a boundary condition. That's what you do if once you've proven one of the, the least likely of the elements, all of the others are perfectly dependent on that. So it's essentially collapsing multiple sources of uncertainty into a single source of uncertainty. Well, like you know, any gambler can tell you, if you need to take multiple risks in order to succeed, those risks can add up. So that's yeah. very interesting. So you're saying to say that you're going to take the minimum is effectively saying that you take the minimum element and then all of the other elements are completely dependent on that one element as a matter of probability theory, which That's of course right. is true. So it's then it's 0.6 times 1, mm -hmm. or if you have five elements, it's 0.6 times 1 times 1 times 1 times 1. Mm -hmm. and, and so effectively you are changing the probability calculus. That's right. And I think part of what's also motivating some of these different arguments, again, in search of the same mathematical rule, is this worry that it's somehow improper or inappropriate for defendants to offer disjunctive offenses, right? Charlie Nesson was pretty explicit about that. I mean, you know, other people have sort of likewise seen that, well, shouldn't you have to pick a story? But the problem is this assumes that defendants have perfect knowledge about the facts under dispute. And if you're thinking about, well, it was a fight in the bar and, you know, the defendant remembers what happened and someone's just lying, that might be okay. But a lot of the times, if you imagine whether it's corporate liability or even just things happen where the pieces are scattered. The plaintiff knows some of the facts, the defendant knows some of the facts, bystander witnesses know some things nobody else knows. The defendant might be legitimately not sure which among multiple theories is correct. And even if the defendant thinks multiple things are correct and they're wrong about some of those things, 
morally, I think, and this, just in terms of the risk of error, we should care about the fact that when you have disjunctive defenses, I, any of them can help you win, it's the opposite of this conjunctive thing. Adding disjunction should escalate the likelihood that one of these things is right. It's like flipping a coin until you get a heads. Doing it, it becomes more likely. So just to bring us back, right? Yeah. So the reason why this disjunctive thing is important is that as you add elements, it becomes harder and harder to satisfy the preponderance rule because on the one hand, for the plaintiff, the conjunction, the probability goes down. So the 0.6 becomes multiplied by another 0.6, which ends up being 0.36. And the reason that's true is because the defendant is able to capture all of the disjunctive possibilities, that it is not A and B, or A and not B, or not A and not B at the same time. And so that's why the the defendant should capture all of that. And I think your main thrust in the paper, which is that we should take the conjunction paradox or the conjunction rule seriously, yeah. maybe we should call it the conjunction rule, yeah. is because we're going to take it seriously, then the defendant is entitled to the disjunction. Now, let me intuitively worry about this for a yeah. minute. I think every lawyer knows that the defendant can't say, well, I wasn't there. But if I had been there, I didn't use the knife or I would have used a baseball bat instead. I mean, that doesn't seem like a good story to present to the jury. You effectively water down your defense by providing a disjunctive explanation. Yeah, there may be disjunctive defenses that tend to cancel each other out. In that case, you have actually anti-dependence. The more likely you make one, the less likely you make the other one. And the whole math of independence versus dependence, this is a much smaller adjustment that we're doing. And if we think it, they're actually perfectly incompatible. There's no way that both of those things should be true. The inverse, it's like the perfect dependence for the plaintiffs. We should just take whichever one we think is more likely, and that's the probability that the defendant wins. So long as you're careful about what independence and dependence mean, there's nothing wrong in that scenario. But sort of more generally, it is easy to forget. Remember, go back to a lot of times the defendant is legitimately unsure about what's going on. So take a corporate defendant who sued because allegedly one of its managers was discriminating. They might say, I'm not sure whether he actually had that intent and legitimately not know about it. But there might be also uncertainty about did he make the decision or did someone else make the decision? And those things can be consistent with each other because they are like the plaintiff trying to discover facts about what actually happened. And we forget situations like that. There can also just be a coherent story that denies multiple of the plaintiff's elements. So the plaintiff might have an out and out, just completely fabricated claim. You ran over me in the intersection because you hate me. I don't hate you. I didn't run you over and you don't have any injuries. And it's a fully disjunctive defense because if any one of those things is right, you don't have to buy the whole thing. You can buy any part of it and he still wins. The point is, whenever we have explanations that can succeed disjunctively, we shouldn't need to be as convinced of the whole explanation to think that probably something in there is right. So that's very interesting, yeah. right? So you said that if you have mutually exclusive or ones that are contradictory, yeah. you effectively cancel each other out. And in fact, I guess the thought that occurred to me was not only do you possibly cancel each other out, but now you create credibility problems with the jury. And so there's some kind of overarching thing that comes in and makes that a really bad defense theory for a trial or what have you. Yeah, you might make it so that just no one can believe you at all. 
so long as there's any credibility to the plaintiff's account, they're just going to choose it. Uh, that's possible. Let's finish up on the question of what should we do? You have very nicely articulated that, look, the jury instructions do in fact have the jury split up the elements. So if we're going to take the conjunction, or the conjunction rule seriously, mm-hmm. what's the solution? So one initially attractive thing, right, is, well, there's mathematical rules which seem to work. If we're careful about them, let's just tell the jury what the mathematical rules are. When you really dig into, even in the paper, right, there are times when I construct a toy example and talk through it for a while, and I have to start waving my hands. Even though it's my example, it's not perfectly dependent, it's not perfectly independent, it's somewhere in between, and for a single thing where we can't do, we don't have multiple trials, we can't do actual statistical analysis on it, we just have to use our gut, it's very hard to tell them what to do in mathematical terms. And a lot of them will probably zone out and not want to pay attention even if you do. And the worry then is if we give them mathematical instructions that don't make sense to them, they go right back to their gut, which we have reason from psychology to think is probably often doing its own version of the conjunction fallacy. So I think a better approach is actually to borrow from this insight that, well, if you do the explanationist approach right, if you say holistically weigh these competing explanations, but pay attention to whether they're conjunctive or disjunctive, and especially if we can explain it in terms that don't use those complicated words, we can give the jury a task which says, look, as you're thinking about this case, pay attention to, are there unusual coincidences in the plaintiff's case? If the defendant says, here's three things, and any one of those things is good enough, remember that just like rolling a die multiple times, each of those is a chance they have to be right, and that should strengthen rather than weaken the credence you give to them. I feel like what I did is in this paper is kind of a rough stab at that, right? Ideally, we'd have lots of people going over this problem and trying out different things. And, you know, this would be good territory for a psychological experimentalist to try different things and see what actually reduces it the most. And I just, that wasn't something I had time for right now. But that's the idea is to give plain language instructions that get you pretty close to what the math actually says should be happening. And because I think that the philosophical approach ultimately, if we're trying to make sense out of it, should say the same thing as the mathematical approach. It actually gives us good tools to work with because it's designed to work in a more intuitive way. Well, thanks a lot for joining us, Mark. Fascinating paper, and we look forward to seeing your future works. Thanks so much for having me. Mark's article makes us look at the conjunction paradox with fresh eyes. I enjoyed the opportunity to grapple with it again, and it certainly made me revisit and, at least in parts, refine my own views on it. More broadly, I think Mark's paper reflects an important fundamental viewpoint. It's often easy, particularly in a deeply intuitive area such as proof, to reject curious results as wrong or paradoxical. But social science has shown us time and time again that our intuitions can fail us. So rather than rejecting results like the conjunction rule as paradoxical, as puzzles to eliminate, Perhaps we should consider them as learning opportunities. While it may not be true in every case, paradoxes do have the potential to reveal errors in our intuition, and they might just help us make better decisions going forward. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Excited Utterance is sponsored in part through a grant from the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. 
Music was provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. Research assistance for this episode was provided by Alex Nunn. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.